Okay, people, my next guest on Just for Sport is Mark Stern. He's a producer extraordinaire for the Tony Kornheiser Show. He's made quite a career for himself, beginning with his first job down in Atlanta during the 1996 Olympics. He's been talent for the US Open, that's the Grand Slam tennis tournament, not the golf. And he's on one of the most successful podcasts in America that he's producing and working with Tony Kornheiser. It's a pretty cool gig. We talk about a lot of things, sports, when it will return, specifically tennis. We also talk about his cross-country travels, seeing baseball, one of his other favorite pastimes. And because he is from Boston, he's a Patriots fan, what it was like to see Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski go to Tampa. Tough time for him. So, okay, but first, first, we begin by talking with the civil unrest that is going on right now in America after the killing of George Floyd and what it's like to not only be going through that as a society, but doing it during a very, very serious pandemic. This is normally a sports show, but we got a lot to get into that's not sports related. This is Just for Sport for the Props Network in three, two, one. All right, Mark, thank you for giving me some time. I really appreciate it. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamoki. It's great to be on with you, man. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this. It's gonna be good to chat with you. And it's been a long time since we did the City Open Wildcard Challenge, uh, but still we're in warm weather at least. I hope you can say the same. It's been warm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, that was. God, that, that seems like it was like 10 years ago. With everything that's been going on, literally like the month of January and like the Super Bowl, doesn't it feel like that was played like, like a decade ago? Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's just been just so many things have happened uh, from the pandemic to, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd and, and now the protests that have been going on for over a week. And, you know, to go right into it, I don't want to start on such a somber note, but it's really important for, I think, to understand, you know, in, in many ways, a different context is where everyone's coming from, what they think of what's happening today. Um, but, what has it been like for you living in D.C. for the past week? Because you're not just in it, like we are large to an extent, but you're kind of in the epicenter with it being the nation's capital and where our president of the United States is. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been strange um, in a word. I don't want to say it's been frightening for me because fortunately where I live, it hasn't really impacted my neighborhood. I probably live a few miles from the White House, but in D.C., traffic-wise, that's about three hours. Yeah. So, um, I have been – one of the things I like to do is I like to jog, and I start down by the Georgetown waterfront. Um, and for those who don't know, that you go on this path. It leads you right by the Watergate, the Kennedy Center, and then you can cruise up through the mall and the Lincoln Memorial and the, uh, the Washington Monument. It's a gorgeous run. Um, mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, over the weekend when I was when I was doing that, I couldn't tell any signs of anything going on. It really was isolated around the White House area in Lafayette Square. Um, and then it started to bleed into some other neighborhoods. And I went jogging yesterday and I saw the presence of the military there. Um, very light presence and everybody very respectful and not sort of in your face with guns. I saw the graffiti um, that was being erased on the Lincoln Memorial. And actually, by the time I looped back, the graffiti was all gone. Um, and, and then, and of course, driving through Georgetown 
and if you see a bunch of stores that are boarded up, a bunch of businesses. And I saw that again this morning, um, driving through Friendship Heights and into Bethesda, where you saw an awful lot of stuff boarded up. But I didn't, I didn't really see any damage. Now, what that mean, could mean is maybe some stuff got broken into, and this is boarded up after the fact, or it might have been preventative. But um, it's just weird to see that when you, it's almost like, when you see those stories of, you know, somewhere in Florida or in the Carolinas, a hurricane's hitting and yeah. you look at you like when you're in the middle of that, you're like, oh, my gosh, everybody's got their eyes on us and we're in the middle of the storm. And and it, it does feel strange that that's going on. The violence breaks my heart um, because what I genuinely hope with all of this is that the violence doesn't detract from the larger much more vital, important message is that there needs to be drastic reforms, in my opinion, both in the Justice Department and in, in the way we handle the police, the way the police are trained, the way police are punished when they transgress. All of that, in my opinion, needs to be revamped and, and done with 21st century eyes to make sure that it's being done the right way and that everybody's being treated fairly. And that clearly doesn't seem to be the case right now. And it has slowly built up from... You know, now people are saying that, you know, the protests and, and the injustices, first and foremost, the racism, first and foremost, that this is in some ways worse than 1968. Now that we've had more protests, that that was more um, local. Obviously, I think a big part of that is media and social media have exacerbated um, and really been able to give everybody a platform to talk about their feelings and express where they are coming from and what they think about what's going on. And I noticed that, you know, you talk about it as well on the show that you do with Tony Kornheiser, that the different guests you bring on, you come from different perspectives. I'm a black man. You are a white man. How has that affected you in trying to understand this problem and I will say from mine, first and foremost, I think the part that makes it right on the base is that I can't change the color of my skin. I am who I am. And to hear anyone on any level talk about, you know, how I may not understand what you're going through, but, you know, something has to change. As you mentioned, what, what are you feeling when you see what's happening every, every day? Well. Let me just start off with how I felt when I saw the video of Mr. Floyd. And I think everybody, regardless of skin color, if they have any kind of heart, they felt the same. They were just aghast and, and really destroyed on some level that that could happen in broad daylight. Um, yeah. Look, you're right. I, I'm white. Uh, and obviously, the way I interact with the world unconsciously is, is going to be different with the way or the way the world interacts with me rather is probably different than, than it is for you. Um, I've got a lot of friends of color and we talk all the time and it, it it's opened my eyes to a lot of things like talking to people that are like, Oh yeah, I, I try not to drive at night. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why, why? Because your eyes don't see well. He's like, no, because I'll get pulled over mm -hmm. for no reason just because of my skin color. And you know, I, the way I go through life and the way I was raised, I don't look at somebody's skin color. I don't look at their ethnicity. I look, or even their gender, I look at who they are and their actions. And so when people act in racist manners, it's so 
outside of my realm of thought. I'm like, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. If it's a good person, treat them well. If they're a bad person, steer clear of them, you know, just, mm -hmm. you know, like don't deal with them. And the, what's become clear, obviously, you know, as, as social media shows you these examples, uh, particularly the, the such troubling stuff that you see with the police, um, with these repeated incidents of violence and, and really murder, in my opinion, uh, against people of color. And it just, it just leaves me so upset that it almost leaves you speechless that that could actually go on. Because, um, I, I, like I said, I, I like to think in a lot of ways that we're past a lot of stuff. And, and a lot of the race riots that went on in the 60s, you mentioned in 68, um, certainly there was a lot of marches here in D.C. And we've, we've all talked about Detroit and the Watts riots. You know, but then you look up and you're like, well, it happened in 68. Then there were riots in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, and then again in Baltimore just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there are systemic problems that need to be addressed to, to, to make sure that these things don't happen. And, and just for me, you know, my instinct is always like, how can I help? But I really... I'm not a person that marches. I'm not a person that, that sort of does that. I, I try and uh, impact the world just in, in my own way around. And people can criticize me for that. that that's more than welcome. But I, I do get scared of going to a, a protest and getting caught up in something where maybe there's some bad eggs there that really just want to tangle with the police. They throw some stuff at the police. And the next thing you know, the police march in and are starting to, you know, really do damage to people. And so I, I try and steer, steer clear of that and, and, as I said, just get my message across in the shows that I do and when I interact with people. And, and I really genuinely believe in committing acts of kindness and doing good every single day, even if, and I know people again are going to say this is inane, but like just holding the door for people or just being nice to people. I think we get lost in a lot of our own lives and our own world that it's so busy and there's so many stress and so many things going on that we forget that we're neighbors to people. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not hard to be nice to folks. And it's interesting because you talk about uh, opening a door for somebody, and that's civility. That's right. a, that the first part of that is being civil. And we're talking about civil unrest right now that's due to racism. And I think there are some other ways you can give back between, you know, donations and using your platform to express sure. your concern because you never know who's listening. Is for anybody who is watching this, if, you know, you heard my intro that, you know, uh, Mark Stern is a big in many more ways than you know. <laughs> and so for all the littles out there that get to hear what you have to say and Tony and Wilbon and, you know, everybody, Jeannie McManus, uh, you know, anybody who you can talk to, Chris Eliza, that they can hear what you have to say. You know, you never know how it's going to impact or change someone's opinion. So, you know, you do what you can. Well, and, and that's when we talk about, you know, the influence I can have on the show. Obviously, it's Tony's show. Um, so he's doing the lion's share of talking on the show. And also the character I play on, for those that aren't aware, I'm Nigel, a British guy. Um, and by the way, I'm sorry I'm wearing a hat. I haven't had my hair cut in like three months, and it's just out of control. So I have to wear a hat everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. That's why you can't see my eyes right now. But what I can do is suggest guests and topics to Tony. And, you know, some of them are very obvious, you know, but we've been, and we're very fortunate with the, with the, the regulars on the show, uh, you know, we, to having Mike Wilbon on every single Monday. There's nothing I love more than listening to Michael Wilbon talk about anything. 
and he can do it with sports. He can do it with social things. When there's a passing of somebody, you know, we haven't talked about Wes Unseld yet, but I know he's mm-hmm. going to talk about that next Monday. Um, he's just he's just the best. And David Aldridge is right there with him. And to have guys like that be able to come on and, and talk about this, because, again, I can see things through my eyes, but what you and I go through in life tragically is very different and I, I wish it weren't that way so what I love to do is 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 get those guests and get those topics talked about on the show and then really just sit back and soak it all in I mean it, it's like having a front row seat to a great play mm-hmm. and um and I get to hear t- Tony who is he's the smartest funniest guy I have ever or will ever know and he's all his instincts are so strong and so dead on and and it's just you know we love to laugh and poke fun again i'm playing a british guy on a show i've been doing it for like almost 20 years mm-hmm. but when serious things happen uh there's nobody better and i i think one of the greatest shows that tony ever did was uh the the shootings at charlotte's um not, not charlotte's virginia tech yeah. we were on the air the next day and and it was you know, anytime there's something big like that that happens, Tony strikes the right tone, brings the right people on, and it really is, it's a daily lesson for me, and I take a lot of my cues from Tony, from DA, and, and from Wilbon as well, you know, and, and I'm only naming those few, but you're right, Gina McManus, Tori Clark, Chris Eliza, you know, Chuck Todd, we're, we're blessed with a lot of great folks on that mm-hmm. show. Uh, and for the most part, it's a sports show. And yeah. nominally, you know, nominally. And, and, yeah. and I think the thing is that, you know, so often sports in general, you know, when you go back to 9-11, it was a unifier. It was something that brought everyone together, rooting for your team, sometimes against the team. But it didn't matter where you came from, your race, socioeconomic status, um, you know, your gender, age. And I wonder how much you are missing it, uh, not just as a game, because the beauty of where we are today, at least we do get to hear from the athletes on the, the subject matter of race right now. You know, LeBron James, Tiger Wood, Dale Earnhardt Jr., you know, people talking about how there is an injustice. Uh, but the game, I always thought is, you know, we're missing it because of the pandemic. Now it's almost twice as bad in that it isn't something where I could imagine a pregame speech of an athlete kind of galvanizing that small group, uh, talking to them before the game starts. But the ripple effects of that when they go home and talk to their son or daughter or father or uncle about, wow, there were some poignant words that were made by Kevin Durant, whatever the case may be sports we're we're really really missing it now and yes there's a bigger picture of race but maybe that is something that could have taken your mind off of it or in some ways cleared it cleared it for you to be able to think well there's a lot to unpack there and and let me and you're dead on with with all of it It, it, let me just start with the 9-11 reference and back then it really felt that was a unifying thing in a lot of ways and wherever you went certainly in the immediate aftermath somebody cut you off in traffic you gave a thumbs up you're like i'm right in this with you brother you know we're right there together and the thing about the pandemic was 
because you didn't know who had it. So you had to be careful of everybody. And then you're locked away by yourself. It's very isolating. And then you became mistrustful of people. And so that unifying thing that we had with 9-11, we didn't really have with the pandemic. And you bake into that all the dysfunction and the division that we faced in this country since Trump was elected, really the, the couple of years before that, it's just been, it, it's just been, people have been at each other's throats. It feels like day in and day out and sports has a healing property. And, and there were a couple of things about nine 11 that were remarkable. One was, and I don't know if you remember uh, president Bush, throwing out the first pitch. Mm-hmm. ESPN did a brilliant 30 for 30 on it. And I had forgotten about it and went back and watched it recently. And it gave me goosebumps. And it just gave me, I, you're so charged up. You're proud to be an American. You're like, yes, we're not letting these people bat us down. We're standing up proud and this is what we do. And he went out there and he, of course, he threw a strike like right out of a Hollywood script. It was unbelievable. And the place went crazy. Now, let me ask you this. If we were in a similar situation, and President Trump went to throw out a first pitch from somewhere, there's, don't you think there'd be zero chance that he'd get that kind of reaction? Yeah, be- that'd, be, that'd be tough. I mean, I think there's a reason why he's going in the other direction in the bunker than exactly. he is actually coming out in public. Yeah, and, 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 and that troubles me. And there was something other incredibly special about this. When people want to, you know, poo-poo sports and say, oh, it's, it's all, only so much fluff, and I get that. You know, this is not the UN. We're not, you know, curing cancer, but it has a healing effect on people and and it has a calming effect on people in times of trouble. And the legendary, one of my favorite broadcasters of all time, the late great Jack Buck um, gave, uh, it was really, he read like a poem really before the first pitch of that World Series when it resumed. And in essence, what it did was, it, it gave the country permission to enjoy sports again, to enjoy their lives again. And, you know, we need something like that. And the fact that we don't have sports or even as they're trying to get going again, we don't know if they're going to work. And with baseball, one of the sports I love maybe more than anything, it's become an argument over money. And mm-hmm. you almost want like a figure to come out of a Hollywood movie, you know, to be like, guys, we need to get out there for people. We need to entertain people. We need to be there for our country. This is what we do. This is important right now. You know, we'll figure things out, but we got to get out on the field. And it just, it doesn't seem like folks are having, having that, at, that attitude, certainly, you know, with a lot of stuff right now. Especially when we're dealing with an issue of race relations and yeah. you've got billionaires and millionaires arguing over, you know, how much money I can make. And I understand that there are two sides to it. Nobody's saying, you know, taking a position one way or the other, as much as just saying that there are bigger problems out there. And I know I'm saying that, but also saying that I think sports is something that people have used as a way to heal and be together and cheer, you know, and be happy about something. Yeah, we all need that in our lives. And there's a lot of different things. I mean, you know, People could say, well, comedy shows aren't going on right now. When will they return or, or music concerts or something like that? But sports is a massive industry, and it's woven into the fabric of our lives. Um, I mean, you go all the way back to the Romans for this. You know, people love – it It unites them, and it, it gives them entertainment because we've all got stuff going on in our lives. 
and to have that distraction and lose yourself and see these unbelievable moments. I mean, when you see LeBron James do the things he does, you're like, oh my God, this guy's unbelievable. And yeah. it shows the ratings that the Michael Jordan, the last dance got, you know, I was enthralled by that. I wanted it to be 20 episodes. It was just <laughs> so much fun to see that stuff again. And, you know, you, you talk about billionaires and billionaires quibbling over the dollars. Uh, you know, there's another issue that this country's facing among many, but it's the wealth gap, you know? And I think that's all baked into what we're seeing right now um, with the protests and, the, and the, some of the rioting that's spilling out from that is that I think there's a lot of people who are like, we don't have anything. We've been locked down for three months. We've lost jobs. Businesses have gone away. I'm terrified and completely uncertain about my future. And there's a whole class of people out there, the one percenters, you know, who are fine. And the wealth that they have compared to the rest, it's just appalling. And, you know, I'm not going to go into Marxism and say we need to redistribute wealth and everybody needs to be making the same. But I don't think it's out of line to say that the wealth gap that has gone on in this country and really the destruction of the middle class I think is one of the biggest problems that we've got going on in the country. And I think it does add into the racism because when people are uncertain about their futures, they react in much more different and hostile ways. And mm -hmm. I think we're seeing a lot of that. As it's almost, it's almost become a perfect storm. And yes. I hate using that word perfect because I feel like you say that in almost like a positive way, but it's like all of these forces are colliding at one time. And I, I don't know if you don't want to experience it in any way. You, you know, you'd like to not have to be in this position, but we are, and we're all trying to heal and, you know, and, and do better for mankind. And hopefully we can get there. And so going back to sports, a specific sport, uh, that you not only are a fan of, but you cover. We cover together City Open Wild Card Challenge. You cover the City Open for years. Uh, you worked at the U.S. Open, the biggest tournament for tennis in the United States, and the best one, uh, I might add. Uh, how much are you missing that, and why is there no plan for major tennis to come back? Yes, there have been some, you know, small tournaments here and there, but major tennis, grand slams, there's no plan for when it will return. And lastly, I might add, I thought it might be one of the first ones because you have to be quiet when they're playing anyway. So if there are no fans, it's like the players <laughs> like the quiet anyway. And I know it's not a good thing to say about not having fans, but you know, that, that's one aspect of it. <laughs> I know what you're saying. And, and by the way, what, what fun it was to call that wild card match with you, man. Mm -hmm. That was that was good fun. Um, and I've I've loved working at the City Open. I've been very lucky. Uh, my friend Scott Jackson, who also works that tournament and worked the U.S. Open, um, worked it before me, and then had a conflict one year and couldn't do it. So he knew I was a tennis nut, and I've been a tennis fan. I mean, I grew up watching Borg. I mean, I'm old. So, but, you know, there's Borg, McEnroe, and Connors, and Nastasi, and Navratilova, and Everett. It was, I, I really grew up in a, in, a, in a golden age of tennis. And then we've seen another one with all the brilliant players today, with Serena, who's just unbelievably brilliant, and, you know, Federer, and Nadal, and Djokovic. Um, I, listen, when the French Open was first, and they said, because they were first in the calendar, and they said, we're going to do this in October. I don't think they consulted with the U.S. Open in Wimbledon because, no, no. It, because I, I've read that those tournaments were like, well, what if we want to move to there? Yeah. Like, to talk about this stuff. 
But the French being the French are like, no, we're going to do it. All right. Oh, the accent. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I don't even know if they're for certain whether they're going to be able to play it. Then the canceling of Wimbledon broke my heart. You know, yeah. it's just, I, it's one of my favorite sporting events of the entire year. There's a vast number of reasons why some of it is because it ties back into my childhood, watching it with my cousins over the summer, you know, waking up to watch these brilliant matches. Uh, and it just takes me back to a time of, you know, when sports were really pure, the pure mm -hmm. enjoyment you get as a kid. Um, and then, well, the good news is, is that the U S open has not been canceled. The city open has not been canceled. Um, there are things being discussed. Um, I, I think I've seen something that uh, talked about, chartering in players so they get them on a private plane because the, the problem is everybody comes from all over the globe right so right. really hard to quarantine folks when they're coming from every different country on the planet mm -hmm. but chartering planes is something i thought was a terrific idea if they can get around you know the, okay we the, the plane is sterile you guys get on it we're testing you get here and then you isolate the players sort of like what they're talking to do with the nba yeah. Um, where they just yeah. pull them up in the compound at Disney. And once you get here, we should be good because we're not interacting with people. Um, but the players have to get on board with it. Uh, there has to be aggressive testing. Um, and they've got to figure out what to do with the media. The main role that I played uh, at these tournaments is post-match interviewer. And I'm pretty sure players not going to want to talk to me when I'm sticking a microphone in his face. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't want to get sick. So... And the thing about the fans, and you're right, it is like golf. It's very quiet. It's very quiet. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I've, I've heard the noise at the City Open during the championships, you know, when <laughs> the, the crowd is packed. I had never experienced anything in tennis like I had at Arthur Ashe Court. I mean, it mm -hmm. was, that was noise like I had not heard before. And, and seeing Coco, uh, Coco Golf. Coco Golf. Yeah, she was playing in Louis Armstrong. And I had interviewed her um, at the city open mm -hmm. and they said, all right, you got to go down. She just won a doubles match and she's going to, you know, go up to the quarters or something like that. And I went down there and I couldn't, I couldn't even hear myself. People were screaming so much for her. And it was, I was like, first of all, I was like, how are you handling this? At like, what are you, 17? <laughs> yeah, I'm freaked out. I'm in my 50s. Was she, was she like 15, right? Yeah, she's, 14, by the way, 15? she is a superstar in the making. I mean, in every level, she's so poised. Like, this is a kid handling mm -hmm. interviews like she's a 20-year veteran. And her talent, oh, I cannot wait to see her career, like, blossom. She's yeah. going to win not one major. She's going to win multiple majors. And I, I think she's going to be great for the sport. I, I really, really do. So, you know, those are the things that they have to figure out. Um, you know, because I, I know they haven't canceled it because they – you know, the reason they have Kansas, they're desperately looking for any way they can mm -hmm. to keep this tournament going. Um, you know, it would be vastly different without the fans. Have you been up to the U.S. Open? Have you seen it up there? No. So, you know what? The, the worst story that I can think of my memory of the U.S. Open is my dad and I were saying we were going to go this year. Mm -hmm. And oh, I don't remember uh, why. And we said no. And we were going to buy tickets that would have had that first, what was it, Serena? Maria Sharapova match. Right. And I was kicking myself the second I saw the draw. And I was like, that was going to be our night. We were going to go up. And well, do, like do it at some point because as a fan of tennis first, and that's the thing too, without the, the fans there, it would feel like a ghost town. 
Mm-hmm. And that was part of the cool thing is that everywhere you look, first of all, everywhere you look, there's a match going on and there's just people everywhere. And it's a beautiful facility. I, I was so blown away by it. And it's humbling to be, I mean, I wasn't calling any of the matches. I'm just doing sort of like, hey, let's do a check-in with Mark Stern. He's out at court 17 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm at the U.S. Open, man. Like, yeah. it was just, it was really cool. Like, I, 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 I don't think I've had that much fun professionally. Now, I also want to say this for folks that are like, well, that's the easiest job in the world. You're just watching <laughs> tennis. What are you doing? It is also the hardest I've ever worked. They're incredibly long days and long nights. And I was in charge of the, uh, the podcast that we had to put out at the end of every day. So mm-hmm. that meant I couldn't do I, I had to get there early and I couldn't go until the matches were over to put, because you can't sum up a match until it's done. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it was long days, but it was well worth it. And I, I, I'm not complaining, but it was uh, the whole experience was just fantastic. If we put the U.S. Open and the city open aside, Mm-hmm. Is there another Grand Slam that you are sad to see that it's not going to be played? And I know there are only three others, but maybe also another tournament in general that maybe you've always wanted to go to, Indian Wells or something else that you're like, man, I'm really sad that though, that, that tournament is not being played now. It's funny you said Indian Wells because I know that was one of the ideas getting kicked around was maybe – putting it on out there. Um, mm-hmm, I don't know mm-hmm. why there is better than, than the facilities in New York. Um, I would have to, well, it's, it's a tie. And this is no offense against oh. the Australian Open. I just don't fly like Tony. I'm not a great flyer. <laughs> <You're> not- <laughs> That's a long flight. I do want to get to Australia at some point, even yeah, though there's yeah. a lot of weird stuff over there. There's like big jumping spiders. There's like all kinds oh, of yeah. Oh, stuff. yeah. But I love the Australian people. Anytime you meet an Aussie, I feel a kinship with them because I'm like, all right, you guys all got kicked out of Britain and we <laughs> sort of just left and we were like, you know, we're like brothers, you know? Yeah, and, and there is a, a friendship there between Aussies and, and, and uh, Yanks. So I'd love to see that, but it's Wimbledon the top of the chart for me. I, I mm-hmm. cannot die without going to Wimbledon. It's, it's just such a special tournament for me. It just, it's the crown jewel. I love the U.S. Open and the memories you have the U.S. Open are, are so sterling and it's, it's his own different animal, but it's Wimbledon. It's, you know, the dress yeah. whites, it's yeah. the bowing in front of the royalty. It's just something cool. And then uh, to see Roland Garros and, and to see the clay and just the magnificence of that. And hopefully I can see Nadal there before Nadal retires. Yeah. Because let me tell you, we, that sport might get played for another thousand years, and there will never be a better clay court player than Rafa Nadal. He mm-hmm. is just an artist out there. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, you want some trivia? Okay, yeah. Nobody knows this, or very few people know this, and I love asking this question. Um, do you know where they get the name Roland Garros from? No. Okay, no, it's fine. You no, no, I definitely don't. Roland Garros was one of the first flyers. He was a French aviator, and he was a pilot in World War I. And when planes first were going around in World War I, they were observation things only. It was like, where's the other troops going? They weren't firing each other. If they did, it was with a pistol, and you never hit anybody. They couldn't figure out how to fire the guns through the propeller. So, you know, there was no combat in the air, essentially. And... He got the idea. He's like, what if we put metal around the, around the propeller and then we can shoot the machine gun through it. Some will go through because it's going fast. Some will bounce off, but 
it'll be okay. So he came up with that, and he started shooting down a bunch of German planes. He was one of the first French aces. He was shot down. He was captured. Wow. He escaped, and he went back to fly again, and, and very sadly was, uh, was shot down and killed uh, before the end of the war in uh, November of 1918. Mm-hmm. But he's this French flying war hero. Wow. And, and, and again, Roland Garros, people probably think it's just a, a couple of French was, words. Yeah, I, I thought it was like somebody who was maybe involved in tennis. Like, right. Like you would never know a Donald Dell if you didn't right. know something specific, uh, like with the U.S. Open. That's what I thought like a Roland Garros might be. Yeah, no, he's this old French flyer. And um, I'm uh, just, truth be told, I'm a huge fan of history. Mm-hmm. And when I get interested in something, I pour into it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, but yeah, for folks, Roland Garros was an actual person and he was a war hero for the French. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, Wimbledon, that isn't a person. No, it's a guy named Jimmy Wimbledon. Right. Yeah. Jimmy Wimbledon. <laughs> um, someday I would like to go to all four of the Grand Slams as well. I'm not as afraid of flying. But mm-hmm. I feel like to go to Australia, you kind of need to not just go for the tournament. That's probably like a, a two-week trip. Yes. Yeah, you got it. If you go, that's not a weekender, you yeah. know? That's not flying out to Vegas and playing some games right. and back. That's- I mean, you could do Paris or, you know, Great Britain. You could do London, you know, in like two or three days and come back, but not. Yes, yes. Yeah. you absolutely could. And I've, I've been to London once as a kid. I haven't mm-hmm. journeyed overseas all that much. I've actually driven across the country like several times. I, I, I feel oh, like wow. I've great, yeah, I've, I feel like I got a great sense of, of the country as a whole. And there's nothing like driving through the country. You really yeah. get a sense of, a, of, of everybody. And yeah. um, so I've only been to London once. I've never been to France, never been to Paris. And mm-hmm. I just think it would be, I mean, it's, come on, it's Paris. It's London. Yeah. I mean, it'd just be cool to go. And, you know, Australia. Oh, my God, would that be fun? Yeah. yeah. So, but you're right. You got to go for a couple of weeks, I think. And, and you drove cross-country. Was it by yourself with a bunch of friends? Which way did you go? Because I went with my parents once, and I, we went north. I remember going through – I remember sleeping. My, my dad was like, we're saving money, so we're going to be sleeping in our station wagon. I remember falling asleep looking at the St. Louis Arch like as oh, I was wow. falling asleep. I don't know why I vividly remember that more so than anything else with the trip. That is it. But what was the reason for you traveling cross-country? Well, um, when I graduated from high school back in 1902, uh, <laughs> one of my best friends, and I know this is going to sound like a made-up name, it's one of my best friends, Clymer Bardsley. His real name is Climber. What? Yeah. That's yeah. really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, also a tremendous tennis player. Like, oh, really? Yeah, he kicks my butt. He's great. And he he belongs to a club that has grass courts, and he invited me up. He lives in the Philadelphia area, and he yeah. invited me up. So I got to play on grass courts once. I'm not kidding you. I actually almost hyperventilated. I was so excited to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, so Clymer and I were, um, when we graduated, we said we wanted to drive across country. So we uh, – we got in his old Volkswagen Dasher. Yeah. We yes. went north. We went through Chicago. We saw a White Sox game at the old Comiskey Park. Wow. We went up through Minnesota and cut through, I think it was South Dakota. See, I'm gesturing like people even know what I'm talking no, about. <laughs> Such an idiot, I swear to God. No, I did the same thing. I said you go up or down. You know, you can go one of two ways. I feel like to see a lot. But we saw the Badlands, which were stunningly, hauntingly beautiful. Uh, we saw Mount Rushmore, which, truth be told, was a little disappointing. Is it smaller than you th- well, think? You're or? in this parking lot surrounded by a million RVs, and then way up in the distance, 
is Mount Rushmore. Oh, wow. Like, oh. And I, yeah. I saw, I don't know if you remember, there's an old movie called North by Northwest. With oh, Karen. yeah, classic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Remember yeah, yeah. the running around the mm-hmm. statues at the end? I was like, well, yeah, can't we go up and run around the statues? But <laughs> I was like, you're an idiot. No. <laughs> so, um, so then, and then we cut down and we, we really, we had to make up time because we were picking a friend of ours up in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, we went through Utah. and then, I did Utah. Yep. And we went through Nevada. And we broke down in a little town called Lovelock, Nevada. Oh, now, wow. When we went through, this is 1987, Lovelock, it's just a nothing town. There's like nothing there. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, there was some Shriners parade going on. You know, the guy with the fezes. Yeah. yeah. Cars they wear the like, little cars. Yep. Right. yep. Yeah, we're like, what the hell? What the hell did we walk into? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> People might now know Lovelock because Lovelock is the home of a prison where one O.J. Simpson was sent oh, when he wow. was convicted. Yeah. yeah. So it was funny after the fact, we're like, oh yeah, I've been to Lovelock. I've been to Lovelock. <laughs> so we ended up having to leave our car there for a week and we took a bus into San Francisco. We met our friend there. We went to see an A's game where one Reggie Jackson was playing. Wow. And we were chanting for Reggie the whole game. And, you know, it wasn't a big crowd. The A's weren't that – it was before they went on that big run, 88, 89, 90, when they had yeah, the Bash yeah. Brothers. But we saw Reggie. We kept saying, Reggie, come on, man. Come on. Just say hi. Say hi. And we finally were like, come on, man. We drove from – with my buddies from New York. We're like, we drove from New York to see you. <laughs> and he stopped. He started laughing. And he turned up to us. And he lifted his hat for us. Yeah. Like, coolest yes. thing in the world. Yeah. Um, then we picked our friend up. We, we went all around San Fran, which was really cool. San Francisco is one of the greatest cities. I yeah. love it to death. And it was my first time there. You know, we saw Haight-Ashbury. You know, we saw the Golden Gate, down Fisherman's Wharf, all that stuff. So what's, it, the, what's the street? Why can't I remember the name of it? The, it's like the Zigzag Street? Oh. Oh, my I, gosh. I should know, and I don't. I just remember Haight-Ashbury, yeah. um, where, where, like, all the hippies, like, all that great music mm-hmm, mm-hmm. started. Um, by the way, we'll both remember the name of that street. For the podcast. We sign yeah. Off. Yeah, yeah, as soon as we're yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> My life right um, kids, before there was a cell phone and Google, these things never got answered. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Who hit 61 home runs? What was the guy's name? Was it Roger Mar Aguirre? Remember now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, every bar bet is settled instantly. Yeah. Uh, and then we drove back, and we drove back through, um, oh, southern Utah, Bryce's Canyon, which mm. is – the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And we wound up in Colorado. And for those that listen to the show, uh, Tony's show probably know I'm a big um, Grateful Dead fan. So mm-hmm. we got to see the Grateful Dead perform there a couple of nights at uh, Red Rocks, which is a beautiful amphitheater and an awesome place to see a show. And then we uh, just kept cruising back, uh, met up with our friend who lives in Ohio and had some fun wow. and, and back. And it was time for school, man, you know? That's pretty cool. If, yeah. if everybody could just travel cross country once, I feel like it's a memory that you will never forget because you were talking as if it literally just happened last week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it did. I'm only yeah, 22. It did. It did. No. <laughs> um, but no, I, and, and I think it's important. And, and I know a lot of people are like, Oh, go to Europe and, and go travel and all this for those that can. And I honestly, man, I think it's so important to, to get in touch with the country that we live in. And to have a sense of the size of it and just the difference from where you go. And you remember that. You remember waking up in the middle of the night like it was yeah. yesterday. Yep. It's yep. in the ark. And yeah. that's cool. When you see that, you're like, 
man, how did they build that? That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, because when I used to work for the Wizards, I remember doing a story. We went to St. Louis to do a story on Bradley Beal, and that was the first time I'd ever been back. And oh, the one wow. thing I wanted to do was go into St. Louis Arch because I don't, I didn't remember it as a kid. And I was like, this is the one landmark that's like etched in my memory. And Did you so, go up in it? Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty Did, cool. Was it scary? It was definitely scary. I mean, because I felt like as a kid, I was like, when it goes up, it goes like, <laughs> like stairs. That's what I felt like it was. But it was a smooth ride. You get up there. It isn't too crowded. It's almost like they do, you know, they control the crowds, the number of people that could be in the top looking down. Um, so it wasn't bad at all. I, I thought it would be a little more herky-jerky and I wouldn't like it and kind of like, you know, I understand that some people have phobia, so maybe they can't go up, or if they go up, they like are really tense as they're trying to look down. But I felt very calm and comfortable, and felt like I was on a so, you know solid ground being up there. But it's beautiful and a beautiful. Not only is it a beautiful sight of St. Louis and Missouri, but most people don't know that across the river is literally Illinois. So that's like <laughs> one of the jokes. Where it's like, hey, you want to go to Illinois? Just go right across the bridge and you're, you're right there. So, you know, that was kind of neat to see it. Uh, it was a fun trip, though. That's yeah, great. And luckily, I didn't have three brothers then. So it was just me. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, another thing I got to see, because you said you'd love baseball and the fact that you mentioned two trips in here. I, I just want to let you know, I did get to see Michael Jordan play baseball. Oh, you did? Uh, yes. Wow. Uh, Greenville Braves were, were the home team, and the Birmingham Barons were the away team. And seeing that bus pull into the stadium, I swear on one hit, he did the jump man pose in the outfield to catch a ball. I, I'm like, no, he had to do it because that's what it looked like to me. But it was pretty cool. I mean, it was a spectacle beyond belief to see the number of people there to watch him play baseball. We're number 45, black and white. It was pretty cool. He, listen, I, I don't know why this dimmed in my memory. It, maybe it's just the years. But watching Last Dance brought it all right back to me. And I'm not a Chicago. I mean, I'm not, I'm not from Chicago. I love Wilbon. Mm -hmm. But I'm a Boston guy, you yeah. know? I love the Celtics. And the Celtics have their own rich tradition. <laughs> yeah. And, but I loved Michael Jordan. I rooted for him in those games like he was on the Celtics. When he was putting 63 on the Celtics, right? You're like, go Jordan. <laughs> you saw what Bird said. He yeah, said that he wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, you know, listen, he, it, it just brought it back. And no disrespect to those that want to take the case up for LeBron or, or anybody else. Mm -hmm. In my humble opinion, it's Michael Jordan and then everybody else yeah and i love watching him. and about the baseball it was fascinating to watch the inside stuff on that it was and, and hear scouts say and not just scouts terry francona who helped me win a world or helped my guys win a world series, <laughs> yeah you know, yeah um and in 07 um you know to hear him say oh given a couple more years mm -hmm. he would have been a major league player you know yeah. maybe a fourth outfielder or something like that but maybe a starter that's astonishing to yeah. me. That tells you what an amazing athlete Michael Jordan is, you know? Yeah, yeah it really is. It's, it's, it was an amazing documentary. I had David Aldrich on, and I had the producer who came up with the idea to follow the team that year, Andy Thompson from NBA, NBA Entertainment. He was on a podcast, too. And just hearing their stories just added to just watching it. Because like you said, just seeing the behind the scenes in the background was just kind of cool. Um, 
do you remember well i know you remember because you're you're sharp and you remember stuff unlike me um the famous shot of jordan where he's hugging the basketball he's like face down on the floor after they win one of the titles yeah yeah you don't seen that shot but it was like a still shot you never heard any audio behind it yeah and then in the last dance, you heard the audio, and to yeah. hear him weeping, the emotional exhaustion mm-hmm. that he was experiencing in the aftermath of what, you know, was this huge accomplishment. And you're like, oh, my God, the toll that it yeah. takes on this guy is just frightening. And, yeah, and- Watch, watching his back go up and down, the heavy breathing. Yeah. Uh, between that moment and a moment that's more in the present was when he was crying after episode seven and just said, that's it, like, break because like he he knew he was about to really break right then um uh let's switch gears a little bit i'm an avid listener as i mentioned already at the tony kornheiser podcast wow i can't talk um (laughs) what has he what has the adjustment been like for you because i think the beauty of what you produce isn't just the podcast and like you said tony's a big part of it but it's you being in the same room with everybody you're like a family the way you talk. And now you've had to break it up. How hard has that adjustment been to keep a safe social distance, but still try to have that element of what you have been producing in the Tony Konazer show since 2004 at WTEM? Well, uh, thank you, by the way, for, for listening and for supporting the show. Um, it's not like a family. It is a family. Like I, I, I look on everybody on that show um, and particularly Tony and Michael as family. Like I, I love, I genuinely love everybody on that. And some, and unfortunately for listeners, sometimes the best part of the show is the stuff that you guys can't hear. We're all just busting chops in the studio and riffing, you know, and then finally yeah. Tony will be like, all right, come on, come on, come on. We gotta go. We gotta go. You know? um, and, and by the way, one of the great things, you know, listen, I worked in radio for an awfully long time. And when Tony and Michael had the idea that they wanted to switch from from radio to doing a podcast you know there was a lot of uncertainty and i wasn't sure what i wanted to do if i wanted to do something else and and i'm so blessed and 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 grateful and fortunate that that tony wanted me to be a part of this to continue to be a part of it and um it's 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 allowed us to grow in ways i don't think we could have grown in um you know, as a radio show, it's given us a little bit more freedom and, and to have fun in between breaks and be like, okay, cause you're just taping stuff. It, you're not looking at a clock like, oh my gosh, we got to make our break. Yeah. Um, so that's been fun, but I have missed everybody in that studio. Um, studios with Gary and Chris, I mean, <laughs> it's really hard to not laugh the entire time. And we're texting each other throughout the show just to crack each other up, you know, busting chops. And it's so much fun. And one of the things that we talked about, um, well, first of all, one of the great things about doing a podcast as opposed to a radio show is we really easily can do this from our different homes. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're grateful that the technology allows us, just like we're doing this right now, that allows Tony to be from his place, for me to be in my place, we have an engineer up in New Jersey, Sean Cherry, who's just terrific. And I want to say thanks to all the folks at Cadence who have supported us throughout this. But without sports and with it being kind of a weird time, to back off to a couple of shows a week, you can do that as a podcast. And people are still thrilled that you're putting content out. Whereas a radio show, you got to do five shows. Come on, keep it coming. And I would have found that to be incredibly difficult to keep that up with nothing going on. So I'm grateful that we're in the medium. 
I'm also grateful. Uh, Michael Kornheiser at the, at the beginning of this was, um, was with his in-laws down in Carolina. Um, and so Tony was by himself in his place and I was by myself in my place. But when Michael came back, um, he was so excited to get back in there with Tony and yeah. it has been great. It makes me feel better knowing the two of them are there and they're socially distancing across Benny, uncle Benny's table, you know, and I'm more comfortable with Michael being in there than I am with myself. I mean, I could put a mask on, but I mean, Tony is an incredibly active, vigorous man. Um, and I'm not going to give his age out. I'll let others do that. But <laughs> he is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he's in that age range where, like my parents are, where you have to be incredibly careful. Like you want to be over there with them, but you have to understand, like you could pick this thing up and bring it in unwittingly. And the next thing you know, they're infected and it's a real danger for people of a certain age. But for Michael and him to be together in there, I think is fantastic. And, and it, it's really tough not having everybody in. But one of the things that we, we talked about doing from the jump was making sure that we have those voices as guests on the show. So we rotate through with all of them. And, we, and because I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you as, as a listener, I think it makes the show seem more like normal. And it's, these, are your, these are your friends and your family. And it makes it feel more comfortable for you to hear everybody. And come on. Who doesn't love hearing from Gary and from Chris and from DA yeah. and Jeannie and Tori and, and Leon? I mean, it's just, they're such great folks and we all have such fun that I wanted to make sure that they didn't get lost from this version of what we're doing right now. Yeah, no, I definitely like being able to hear from everybody and the fact that because, you know, you have more to talk about, um, you know, I feel like hearing what not just their thoughts on the world in sports, but hearing just at their home, hearing Gary Braun talk about his kids and having them go outside and do the yard work because what else are they going to do? Like, it's like, oh, we're all kind of listening to each other and experiencing, you know, this pandemic and, and, and now uh, the protest kind of together and everybody sharing their different views of it uh, is, is very cool. Uh, and I do like it. Tony doesn't dole out respect, um, praise, often unless he really means it. Mm -hmm. And for you to be with him since 2004, obviously means he respects you and appreciates you. And there's an admiration there for, what your, for your craft. What do you think that is how you two have hit it off and been together and had such a successful show for so long? Well, a lot of people don't know this. Tony was in debt to a man named Vito Corleone. <laughs> and Vito then asked him to repay the favor by hiring me. Um, no, uh, listen, I was a big fan of Tony ever before I met him. You know, even before he got into broadcasting. Uh, you know, when I moved here in 1982, reading him and Will Bond and Boswell in the Washington Post, I came from the Boston Globe mm -hmm. where you had Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, you know, I mean, I, just a host of others that I'm not mentioning right now, but who are fantastic. You come down to DC. I'm sorry. This is the best sports section in America right wow, now. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And re every time I read Tony, I'm like, that, that's what I was thinking. How are you <laughs> tapping into my head, old man? And he just has this way to connect with everybody with humor, with gravitas when he needs it. And he always nails it, you mm -hmm. know? And, and so when we first got put together, um, you know, it, listen, it was a thrill and it was an honor. And I always 
listen, all right, truth be told, I don't know if I was working out when the show first started. Oh, wow. Um, well, because, again, like you said, it's hard to earn Tony's mm-hmm. respect and, and get on the inside. And I was trying hard, but I, I didn't know if I was doing well. And, and, and then the Nigel thing came up. And we sort of created this character out of thin air. He had no idea that I could do voices. And he was <laughs> totally charmed by that. And he literally, after we did the, you know, we, it, I won't go into the whole story of it, but we sort of did this bit where Gary and I were doing a British accent. And at the, we went big laugh, we go to commercial. Tony points at me and he literally said, you can only talk like that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. used to exist and, and Nigel was born. And, um, and he really loved, he knows that I'm like a little subversive and he loves subversive stuff. Um, and so we shared that. We also shared this unbelievable passion for music and a certain type mm-hmm. of music. Mm-hmm. And he would be blown, be like, how do you know this song? And I was like, Tony, my first job was at an oldie station. Like, I love <laughs> this music. I know about it, not as much as you, but, yeah. I, and, but one of the things I miss that we can't do in the podcast is I'll play a song to see if he can name the song. And invariably he always would because he just is like that. Yeah, and yeah. I think the thing that I've always tried to do with Tony is I've never wanted to let him down. I've mm-hmm. always been crushed when I have failed him and I have failed him a million times over. Yeah. And, and I think what, and I, I can't say what he's thinking or what he thinks of me, but I think what he sees in me is a guy that always is trying so hard. I mean, I, I really try to work as hard today as I did when I first started on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he sees that when I, when I don't come through for him, that I'm just incredibly crushed because I just don't want to let him down. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing somebody that cares about the product as much as he does, um, I, I think, I think he, I think that's one of the things he really appreciates. And in the times where I haven't screwed up, yeah. I've done a pretty good job and, and I've been able to navigate through all the different changes we've done on the station. And I think ultimately he knows that if he asks me to do something, it's going to get done. Mm-hmm. And, and you're almost like a left tackle in that sense. Yeah. You know, just there's stuff. And listen, kids, if you want to know what a great producer does, I'm going to tell you right now. Um, there's no one thing. What you find, what you need to do is find out what the person you're working with, what makes them comfortable and then make that happen. Because mm-hmm. if they're worrying about a bunch of other stuff, they're not focused on the show. And mm-hmm. what you want all that worry to be gone and just to, so you're just free and easy and having fun and reacting on the show without worrying about a million different things. That's my job is to freak out and worry about stuff behind the scenes and let him just be free to execute. And that's what I've always tried to do with any show that I've worked on, but particularly with Tony. Yeah. And as they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think the fact that you've kept things the same from old guy radio to the intro song before you read the, the emails at the end, uh, even a routine of Bethesda bagels, <laughs> like every time he asks you to say, Hey, talk about Bethesda bagels. Uh, it's you know just... what we forgot today. So let me give a <laughs> shout out to Bethesda bagels. We actually talked about it after the show and I was like, he was like, damn it. And, and again, I was crushed. I was like, he's like, yeah. I can remember that. And I was like, no, no, man, that's me. That's my fault. My fault. <laughs> so Bethesda Bagels, uh, I think it's 7819, might be 4819, Bethesda Avenue. They're open from every day from 7 a.m. <laughs> there you go. They, they have amazing bagels. They are fantastic. You'll love them, uh, BethesdaBagels.com. Yeah, um, th- there you go, a plug. Because, I mean, it's just, you know, you talk about how you're a family and – 
you know, I almost wish you could go two hours and just start recording when you when you're getting the well more back in the day. Just start recording when you first get in there because that's the juicy stuff. I mean, you have to do some kind of uncut podcast where you just save all of the stuff that didn't make it into the show and just put that out at like the end of every week or a day like in the summer when Tony's not going to be doing a podcast, you and him are on vacation. You could just kind of have a bunch of this, you know, stuff stockpiled. <laughs> See, my job is to make sure that audio never sees the light of day. That's my job. Uh, no, I know. And I know people say we should do more shows. We should do longer shows. Um, you know, but you got to leave the audience wanting a little bit more. Like we yeah. love the format that we're doing right now. Um, and because it's a podcast, some days we can go short, some days we can go long, you know, we can cut out a segment if we need to. I know mm-hmm. we, and people want to know why we're not doing news because it's really hard not to sit down with Tony before the show and go through. He's always, he comes through, by the way, he's the most prepared guy you've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. He comes, he comes in with all his notes on his Washington post. He's got every question written down that he wants to ask the people that's going to be guests on the show. He's got a bunch of news stories that he's seen that he wants me to do. I'll offer up a couple of things, but I always want to do the things that he's interested in because that's the stuff he's going to be most engaged in. But he is fully ready to do a show if nobody else shows up except for me and him. Mm-hmm. He is, without question, the most prepared, most professional broadcaster I have ever or will ever work with. Mm-hmm. And he, I know he doesn't, he's not effusive with praise with a lot of stuff, but behind the scenes, he's very good at letting you know you're doing a good job. He's yeah. fiercely loyal to the people he loves. And, and like, I, I mean, I do consider him to be family. I mean, I've got a father who I love very much, but Tony is of a similar age to my father. I almost feel like he's my uncle. I look mm-hmm. up to him in so many ways and he has taken care of me in a, in a brutal industry. Broadcasting is just awful and there's yeah. the worst people ever that you go and i've worked with a lot of them there's some <laughs> terrible people who will crush you and just stomp on you to get ahead or just for sport and tony is very old school and when you're on his team you're on his team and and i i just i'm so grateful that we wound up together and i think our our sense of humor the movies we like, the music we like, and just sort of the, the way we look at the world in a lot of ways is very similar. I, I think it's another reason why we've meshed so well mm-hmm. for so long. How do you pick letters for Tony to read? Because you're the gatekeeper. Short and funny, man. That's Short it. And funny, yeah. That's it. You know, and of course, I say that, and then somebody will write in an email saying, Hervé Villachez, you know, or you know, just, <laughs> come on. Like, no, uh, it's funny <laughs> once, but I've seen it a million times. Um, no, you just look through stuff that he's been interested in and he's having fun talking about right now. Like he's really loving all these sort of like memory lane emails about growing yeah. up on Island yeah, yeah. Born and all these yeah, other yeah. things. So I look for those and you know, it, it, but really the people that send in an email that's like really long, yeah. it's just, you're like, we don't have time for this. For the, yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes I'll set them aside and say, hey, this is kind of cool. I don't know if you're going to read it, but I wanted you to see it. Mm-hmm. You know? So, but that's short and funny. That's, you know. How many David Aldrich moments, uh, another, uh, you know, little Tony Kornheiser thing, do you have? Do people come up to you on the street and, and do they say Nigel or Mark more? Uh, well, actually, the beauty about playing a British character on the show is that nobody actually knows who I am. I <laughs> through life pretty much anonymous. I mean, unless people already know who I am. Yeah, yeah. Know, like, I'm not, trust me, I'm not Tony. If, if I sh- now, 
I will say this. I've gotten to be very friendly with the people at the Palm, and they love me there. In fact, yeah. my picture's up there, too, which is <laughs> insane. Um, so I do get the star treatment when I'm at the Palm, but if I go anywhere else, I'm nobody. So, yeah. no. Hey, the Palm is a good place to get star treatment. Uh, you can't do much better than that in D.C. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I did not say this. At the very beginning of the, the pandemic, right around the lockdowns, right around, I want to say March 15th or something like that, um, the legendary Tommy Giacomo passed away. Mm -hmm. and, um, he was just the best. I mean, I love Tommy. For whatever reason, he loved me. Tommy was the, the general manager of the Palm forever and really welcomed us in there. And was anybody that knew Tommy loved him. He was just a character. They don't yeah. make him like that anymore. And um, that was sort of like this unbelievably sad note right when we we're entering into this incredibly sad period of, of time. So Yeah, and the funny thing is it's such a popular restaurant, but it's on like a side street. You know, it's not like on Connecticut Avenue with the glitz and glamour. If you know the Palm, you know D.C., like mm -hmm. it's it's really hidden away, and it's one of the best gyms of a restaurant uh, okay. in the city. So well, hopefully we ha we have a uh, yeah. Hopefully it is open up soon. Um, we have uh, a dinner with the city open crew, and mm -hmm. we used to go to a different place. And then after like one or two years, the guy that was running was like, "Is is there somewhere else we should be going? What's like a true DC place?" And I said, "The Palm." And so now. We're not probably going to be able to do it this year. I don't know if the city open will get going or not. Yeah, yeah. But every year we do it, we have our, like just before the week starts, we have our team dinner at the Palm and it's always fantastic. Yeah. Okay. You're from Boston. Mm -hmm. Please tell me that in some way you have either healed or you love that Brady and Gronk are in Tampa now. You're a Buccaneers fan? <laughs> no. I Mark, know. come on, Mark. Um, and also, truth be told, because people, the the few freaks out there that know my my bio fully, know <laughs> that I was an ardent Vikings fan for an awfully long time. I broke up with them, and mm -hmm. I was, this was not a front runner thing. I had I had my friends from Boston literally lobbying me for twenty years to to switch. And yeah. something happened with the Vikings. I got very upset, and I said, "I'm done with the team." And it wasn't they lost the game. I'm not going to get into it, but I was upset. I said, I'm done with you. And I went to my friend and I said, very quietly, I said, all right, I'm going to come on board with the bat. <laughs> and he said, this is great. He said, um, if they make it to the Super Bowl, you're coming to the Super Bowl with us. I have two friends that have literally attended every Super Bowl the Patriots what? have played. Yeah. Wow. Great moments, some awful moments. Yeah, the Bears, 1985. Uh, well, actually, that's the one they didn't see because they're too young. They're <laughs> okay, too young. Oh, okay, okay. But I think starting with the Bledsoe one against oh, okay, the, okay. the Packers, yeah, everyone. And um, so that was the year of the Seattle game. And we mm -hmm. were doing the, the show. We were still the radio show. We we're doing it in Arizona. So that's where the Super Bowl was. So they're like, we got your ticket. You're coming. And wow. so I got to see the Malcolm Butler play live. And yeah. it oh, was wow. crazy. You had yeah. no idea what was going on. It's great about football. You watch it on TV. You can see immediately what happened. Yeah. And you're like, what? What happened? And then you saw <laughs> Patriots running out of the pile with a finger up, and you're like, did we just, oh, my God. <laughs> it was insane. So I came into the Patriots fairly late in their run, but I still got to see and cheer three Super Bowls. I only went to one, but mm -hmm. see them win three Super Bowls, which was yeah. insane in the, the game against Atlanta. I'm sorry, Phil. Oh, Oh my yeah. God. How did you not win that game? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyways, 
Um, I understand why Brady uh, wanted to go. I think yeah. it's a very restrictive atmosphere under Belichick. Very successful. But mm -hmm. what you saw was Belichick was not going to bend his rules even for Tom Brady and yeah. not give him an exception or cut him slack as a 42 or 43 year old who had won six Super Bowls and been to nine or whatever it is. You know, uh, I, I think, I think that relationship had run its course professionally. I mm -hmm. think there's still love and admiration with those guys. I'm not super thrilled that then he's calling up Gronk and Gronk's coming back. Cause you know what, if Gronk had played last year, there was a really good chance they would have won yeah. the Super Bowl again. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Yeah, man, if you just play one more year, no, I'll be good. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think management and ownership, I think, made a decision that they didn't want Tom back. And, and so it's hard to blame Brady for that. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was a way to make it work. But, I, you know, listen, at some point, John Lennon went in out of the Beatles, man. You know, you're yeah. like, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. Tampa is not exactly the place I would like him to go. Have you ever mm -hmm. been to Tampa? Yeah, I actually, I went to a Bucks game last year. My good friend, Casey Phillips, shout out to Casey. Uh, her life has changed. She works for the Bucks. She does. She's oh, one of their oh, on-air talent. And okay. now she's like, yeah, this is completely changing my life. It's, yeah. it's been wild and, for her. And I shouldn't talk too much smack about Tampa. I have been down there. Um, <laughs> for those that remember Courtney, the goddess, I, uh, I went down um, and visited her a couple of times down oh, there. Okay. Just as friends, just, just as, as friends. friends. We're still friends. I adore her. Just don't want to start any rumors. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I love her. She's the best. And so I, and I've been to a couple of games down in Tampa and like, they're going to have fun, but yeah. uh, you know, the way the Boston media covers it, it's like, a guy who's reading his ex's Facebook posts. You're like, mm -hmm. just stop. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just let him go. You know, let's see what yeah. this him has and let him go. I, I don't wish him too much success, but I wish them well. Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. uh, well, and who knows if where the football season will go at this point. I mean, basketball is trying to figure it out. NHL is trying to figure it out. Uh, la last question here. You mentioned that you got your first big break uh, covering the Olympics in 1996. Yes. Um, I worked in Atlanta. That was my first job at oh, WGNX. Um, and I remember being down there and, and not really appreciating what I was witnessing, that it was the Olympics. Uh, what was, and, and being in that city, not having to travel to an Olympics, right? You know, the Olympics came to you. Sure. What were you doing there? What What was that like? What do you remember most about that time? And and I hate the thought that maybe what you're going to say is the bombing and the Olympic. Uh, well, that's the thing is, that sticks with you. That's the thing that sticks with you because it was such a you know and really an historic event. Um, I was a production assistant for Atlanta Olympic Broadcasting, mm -hmm. um, which basically meant I was a gopher, and you know um, we did a bunch of different stuff. I would sit in the production truck during some games, and you would get to watch you know, the director direct a game. And wow. I had never seen that before. And it's really cool. Like, all right, ready camera three. All right. If they make the shot, we're going to go to camera two. If they don't go for a crowd reaction on camera five, like this guy, it's like an orchestra, like an orchestra. And he's a yeah. Yeah. It was, I saw a really good director. I have no idea what his name was, but it was like, everything flowed smoothly and it was really cool to see. I also worked security for the men's basketball arena. Oh, um, wow. I know. Me, if you see me, I'm about five foot nothing. Like, I'm not the guy you think is scary, but we're checking yeah. people's ID badges. And the cool, first of all, it was really cool to see those games. And I had never heard sound like that. It was in the, in the Georgia Dome. 
and only half of it because the other half was gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And when the U.S. team was there and it got loud, I was like thinking to myself, I'm essentially on the 20-yard line here. Yeah. If this were a football game, I don't know how those guys can call a play. <laughs> you not, and you're screaming in somebody's ear and they're like, I can't hear you. Yeah. Uh, worst part about that was there was a coach from another team he didn't have credentials, and we had no idea who he was, so we wouldn't let him on the court. And, and finally, somebody came over, like, he's the coach of the other team. We're like, hey, sorry, man. <laughs> Got to wear your badge, dude. Got to wear your badge. Um, but, and we also saw Muhammad Ali came out to wow. win the game, and that was unbelievably cool. Yeah. Uh, and for those that remember, that was the Kerry Strug year. When oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. She did the She got hurt, yeah. Her leg was all, li- yeah. leg was screwed up. Okay, so... After she does that, we're working security. The basketball game was starting later that day. So we're there just making sure nobody gets onto the court. And you hear all this craziness going on over in the gymnastics side, which is right over there, but we can't see anything. And then there's this little runway between the two sides. And we Mm -hmm. see this gurney getting wheeled out with Carrie Strug with a gold medal around her neck. And there was like four of us working security, giving her own private ovation. Wow. And to see this young girl who had just achieved this miraculous, unbelievably spectacular thing, like just us. It yeah. Was really, yeah. really cool. So that, that's, those are the things I remember. As for the, the bomb, I walked through the park literally about a half an hour before it went off. Yeah, it was at what, Atlanta, uh, Olympic Centennial Park. I don't know why it's got Olympic yeah. Village. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was, it was where music was happening. Everybody mm-hmm. was – and it was really – it was a really cool – the whole scene was great. I loved Atlanta. It was a little too hot for me, but it was really – I loved the whole scene down there. And that happened. I was at – I was in a hotel. I was at the bar having drinks with some of the people from, that we're working with. And – all of a sudden, you saw all – I didn't know they were Secret Service until they all grabbed their, like, right ear, and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, like, 30 guys ran out of the building. You're like, wow. what's going on? The next day – and I, I want to put this in perspective because the use of military, the National Guard, and the things I told you about, seeing the light military presence around the monuments, and it uh-huh. really was light. It was, like, a couple of soldiers here and there. Just really that was it. The day after the bombing – I thought I was in Normandy Beach on November mm. on, on June 6, 1944. I'd never seen military presence like that. They came in in a massive way, and I was like, oh, my God. Because you didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and yeah. scary. Obviously, your heart breaks for the people that were killed in that and the people that were hurt in that. And, and poor Richard Jewell, who got trashed accused of doing it and basically convicted in the court of public opinion. And then it mm-hmm. turned out obviously that he had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's funny. It's, it's all mixed in together for me. And, you know, I just remember driving back, you know, I had this crappy little Ford Escort and I was driving back <laughs> from Atlanta and it was just like, I can't believe that I just did that. And it was shortly thereafter that I got my first job in radio and was on my way up to New Hampshire to yeah. Lake Winnipesaukee. Wow. Yeah, so it was, but it was, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a cooler, you know, thing to be involved in to start my career on. Yeah, we had another bonding moment just there, a David Aldridge moment. I had a crappy Ford Escort then too. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. Then I, I had a red one, a red one that would leak so much and I couldn't afford to, to change the, I guess it was the, 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 I had to just put new oil in it probably every other day because I didn't yep. have the money to get it fixed at the time. 
Yep. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, I was the same way. That's why we had Ford Escorts, you know, <laughs> I love them. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much. I wish you the best. Uh, thank you for giving me so much time and I will continue oh. to be a little and a fan of you and the show and everything you do. And uh, thank, thank you so Bogey. much. For this was on. such a treat for me. Um, thank you so much for listening to the show and being a supporter and being a good friend over the years, man. It's always brings a smile to my face when I run into you or when I hear from you. Yeah. You're just one of the good, as I've said, there's a lot of bad people in this business. <laughs> you ain't one of them, man. You're one of the good ones. Um, I also <laughs> want to let folks know, in addition to Tony's show, the Tony Kornheiser show, um, you can listen to another project I'm involved in with the unbelievably talented and funny Adam Ferrara, the great, oh, brilliant wow. stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's a great actor. You might know him from Rescue Me, Nurse Jackie, um, all these great things that he's done. Um, and we are doing a show called the Adam Ferrara Podcast, and it's spectacular. It's a lot of fun to work with him. Uh, there's a guy named Phil who's his writing partner, Phil Tag. His wife, Alex, is on it. It's the four of us. Wow. And um, yeah, so it's the Adam Ferrara podcast. We really, it's a lot of fun. And I encourage folks to check it out. It's, uh, we have a blast doing it. I hope people enjoy it. Okay, you got a new fan. I'll be, I'll be definitely listening. <laughs> thank you, man. I appreciate thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I want to thank Mark Stern for being a guest on the show. We wish him the best with the Tony Kornheiser Show podcast. Really, I'm a big fan, if you couldn't tell. Uh, we want to thank you for listening. I appreciate the support. Please leave a review, share it with others. If you're listening to it on podcast, you can get on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. And then you can also, of course, see the video right here on the Props Network YouTube channel. Please make sure to subscribe. That's it for now, everybody. Ciao for now. <laughs>